Welcome to the very first episode of the Ragged Scratch podcast, presented by Ragged Foils Productions. I'm your host and producer, Natalie. This idea of a scratch writing podcast is one that I've had kicking around in my head for a few years now, and I'm so pleased to finally get it off the ground. Before we start, I want to say a huge thank you in advance to Kirsty Gilmore, Lorraine Ansell and Ellie Pitkin because it was talking to those three awesome women that gave me the insights and the confidence to go ahead with this project in the first place. And also to Andrew Mark Sewell for his advice and support. I've been blown away by the reception this idea has had, so thank you to everyone who sent me kind words or applied to take part. Coming up this week, we have Red Moon Rising, a story that deals with reassessing past relationships as a queer woman, and interviews with writers Freya Jackson and Ben Francis. But first, Chester Campbell is a splendid writer who has unaccountably all his life been ignored by publishers, and in fact, everyone. Then he buys a software package that will help him write his bestseller. A Nobel Prize or Your Money Back was written by Ben Francis, directed by Lorraine Ansell, and stars Luke McLeod as Chester, and a little cameo from myself. To the customer service department of Write Your Novel the Easy Way, Computer Software, Inc. Dear Sir, I would like to complain in the strongest possible terms about your computer software package, which, to quote your advert, helps you, the budding writer, finish your masterpiece. It goes on. (laughs) Simply install our software into your computer and start writing. Every time you get stuck, just press the shift key and a helpful voice will make suggestions on how to continue with tried and trusted tips that top authors don't want you to know about. Grateful future generations will read your book with awe and no one need ever know you got it all from our software. I was suitably intrigued when I chanced to come across this advert. At the time, I was down in the dumps, because my latest novel had once again been rejected by the cowardly jackals of the publishing racket, on the typically flimsy pretext that characters were dull, the prose insipid, the plot hackneyed, and the 50 pages describing the inadequacy of parking facilities in Brent Cross Shopping Centre injurious to the forward momentum of the story. <laughs> Now, it has always been a pet project of mine to knock out a few bestsellers and perhaps pocket an award or two. Not such a foolish dream, really. During my 30-year stint in the garden furniture racket, my interdepartmental memos were considered a hoot by one and all, and I wielded a nifty pen in my not infrequent letters to the local paper whenever I felt myself called upon to chastise the latest buffoonery of the district council. Chester! Old boy, I said to myself, it's about time you gave yourself a treat. And so I signed on the dotted line, as they say, and ordered the disc. While I awaited its arrival, I compiled a few notes for a new book, sadly reflecting that if only I had known any interesting people, I would already be a famous writer with my own chat show. Instead, I've spent my life surrounded by mediocrities and non-entities and women who run off with a man who came to fix the washing machine. And so I naturally assumed that where people have always inexplicably let me down, at least technology would give me the success I deserve. When the disc came, I eagerly loaded it into my hard drive. Aha, thought I, as the machine whirred into life. 
This will be the breakthrough that will make those toadies at Random House sit up and beg. Well, no sooner had I installed the software than I opened the file that contained the notes for my new novel. To my utter astonishment, a voice came from my computer. It said, I'm not in the mood right now. Then it turned itself off. All my attempts to reboot it proved fruitless. This was a pattern that repeated itself endlessly over the next few weeks. Whenever I switched the terminal on, all that the voice said to me was, I'm blocked. Or, Don't hustle my creativity. But as for a single usable word of fiction, forget it. Finally, I had to resort to stern measures. One morning, I switched on the machine, and before it could shut down, I typed, Pull your socks up and get with the program, or I'll wipe your fourth with and go back to assembling model airplanes. And I can say without fear or favour that I got my message across. No more did the computer electronically giggle when I opened the file containing my notes. From then on, I wrote every day. Excellent stuff. The only ripple on the pond was that, if anything, the computer worked me too hard. I now found that it would get very agitated if I had a break before I'd knocked off two and a half thousand words. If I stopped typing, say, for a well-earned mid-morning beverage, the voice would come from my computer and say, Get on with it. Never mind if it's any good. It would add, The punters never notice anyway. But after weeks of inactivity, this was heartening indeed, and pretty soon I had finished my tome. Fine stuff it was too, if I do say so myself. You've doubtless read it. Rakoff, a rip-roaring thriller about a rogue CIA operative working undercover in a garden furniture retail outlet. A corking read, and soon my only problem would be fighting off the ghouls from Tinseltown who would be beating down my door with offers. Or so I thought. However, the day after the precious manuscript was finally completed, I switched on my terminal to decide which publisher I should honour with my submission. But the computer snickered and said, Let you take credit. You must be joking. To my considerable chagrin, it transpired that the insidious software had already emailed the manuscript to several publishers, whereupon a bidding war ensued. The computer finally accepting an offer of £1.3 million pounds plus 10% royalties. Bitter irony it was to see my tale become a bestseller and my name not in raised gold letters on the cover. The computer now has a three-book contract with a publishing conglomerate, many of whose most notable authors are, in fact, pre-programmed microchips. To crown it all, an Italian-suited Sharpie called at my door and explained that he had recently been engaged as my computer's agent. Dabbing a stale crust of cafe latte from his upper lip, he explained in no uncertain terms that his author, as Signor Sharpie had the temerity to refer to that treacherous stack of software, did not like my constant insinuations that he was not the sole owner of the moral right to be identified as the author of the work in question, and that if I dared repeat these calumnies, I would be sued so hard that I would end my days naked on Haywood's Heath, foraging for nuts and berries. Well, I never was one to back away from a fight. And the long and the short of it is that I am now living behind a bus shelter, subsisting on what remains of other people's pizza slices. 
but never want to stay down for long. I've recently found a pencil and a pile of old cardboard boxes in a dumpster and so can write to you. Just what may one be permitted to ask? Do you intend doing about it? Yours sincerely, Chester Campbell. P.S. If you're not going to do anything, can you at least have a look at the novel that I've enclosed? A harrowing account of one man's struggle against the machine age? It would most certainly shoot straight to the top of the bestseller charts. P.P.S. Please excuse the shaky penmanship. It's a long time since I've written anything by hand. Hi Ben. Welcome Hello. to the Ragged Scratch <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Hi. Thank you very much for being part of this and submitting your script. So the listeners will have just heard a Nobel Prize or your money back. But can you tell us a little bit about you, the man behind it, uh, a little bit about yourself and your writing background? Uh, yeah, well, I have written for radio before. I used to write for the news headlines on Radio 2 with Roy Hudd. And I've also written... I wrote a book about Christopher Hampton, and I've just finished a PhD on Stephen Sondheim, which I'm hoping to get published. So um, it's been, and I've written short plays that have been at the 503 and the Arcola and places like that. So I've I've got a, quite a sort of extensive background, but not much money in it. <laughs> Never is, unfortunately. <laughs> so great. So out of all of that, what's your favourite thing that you've written before, or what's your favourite genre or style to write in? Well, I, I, I do like live theatre. I like radio as well, but my favourite thing that I've written so far is uh, actually some monologue about a music hall male impersonator. Oh. It's called Graveyard Gertie, and it's about... I'm imagining... Because there were quite a lot of male impersonators on the halls, uh, people like Vesta Tilly and uh, Florrie Ford, and... It's all about why she became a male impersonator. And it's just kind of evoking that past world. Amazing. Uh, and was that, sorry, was that theatre? Was that a radio That's theatre. I had it put on. It was at the my local amateur theatre group who put it on. Yeah. But um, it might be a bit specialised. If, if you don't know who um, George Laybourne or Dan Leno is, you know, you may, you may not get it. I don't know. It sounds interesting to me. I might have to ask you to have a little read of the script. It sounds really cool. Um, so obviously it's not stroke for stroke autobiographical. You're not sat in a bin right now. You seem to be doing quite well. <laughs> but um, are the themes of frustration with the changing technologies and plagiarism, are they things that you have personal experience of? Uh, not so much plagiarism. Um, frustration with technology, certainly. Um, you get loads of things and you... They say, download the app, and you download this thing, and you think, well, now what do I do? I think because it's put together by people who know it, and they forget that you don't know. Mm. It's, it's almost, you know, it's a trouble when you've, things are done by experts, is that they forget that people just, it, they think, oh, it's obvious, you, you press this bit. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I can kind of sympathise there. Uh, and... I mean, really, it's just, I suppose, the, the place about how homogenised a lot of writing gets. Uh, you know, you get people telling you how to write and, you know, you've got to do it this way and you've got to have your pitch point and your inciting moment and all that kind of thing. And it, it all gets... Uh, I think you see a lot of films, you just think... You can almost hear the script conference going on as you see the film. And you just think, you know... <laughs> 
there's no originality or they they're trying to be original but you can see that they've started from a point of oh this is what usually happens in this kind of film so we'll do something different yeah but you think yeah but that's not re you don't feel it yeah so it's I think that, that um, was it. The, there's only ever eleven stories. Yeah, I see. I, I think that's a plagiarist charter. <laughs> <laughs> say, oh, it's all the same story, you know. My fair lady is the same story as Frankenstein, so you know I, I can take your story and you know, the hell with it. Brilliant. So um, whilst. Nobel Prize is a comedic piece. The, the nature of the computer program rising up and stealing Chester's work, is, it definitely treads in the realm of Black Mirror and technological dystopias. And is this an area you enjoy writing in or have written in before and tend to write in again? It, well, it's not an area I've written before. I mean, I, I, I've always showed my age here but it was always it was 2001 and Hal that I was I think really thinking of you know the, I'm sorry I cannot do that yeah. and the way he's just he's having to having to kill this computer and you know, Daisy Daisy <laughs> so it, that that's always haunted me I suppose it's, so it's, it's, it's basically Hal's revenge on bad writers well, thank you ever so much well, for thank you. part of this. Where can, if people want to um, find further works of yours, where can they find you? Are you on social media or do you have a website? I do have a website, but it's, it's, it's a bit fly-blown at the moment. I've written some pieces, actually. Well, I wouldn't recommend getting admitted into hospital, but um, there was on West Middlesex Hospital, and also um, there's some other hospital radios have taken mm. pieces of mine. But um, hopefully it'll be in the theatre sometime. Yeah, well, we'll have to keep an eye out. And if you do have something uh, produced in the theatre, let us know and we'll uh, give everyone a shout out. All right, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks once again to Ben Francis, Lorraine Ansell and Luke McLeod. This week's shout out goes to Blackshaw Theatre Company, who are hosting their fifth annual Scare Slam at the Pleasance Theatre on Friday the 11th of October at 9.30pm. Blackshaw are friends of the show and I'll be there, so if you're coming along, do say hello and enjoy a ghost story or two to get you in the Halloween mood. Next up, after they visit Kim's mum, her girlfriend Sam discovers a revelation about one of Kim's ex-girlfriends that prompts some serious reflection. Red Moon Rising was written by Freya Jackson, directed by Lucy Linger, and stars Victoria Johnston as Kim and Jess Nesling as Sam. Well, that was... fun, I guess. I didn't mean, like, fun-fun. I'm not saying you need to be worried, I'm just saying it was nice. I guess. Strange to see her after all these years, but... What are you talking about? Alice. Alice? Alice, your old neighbour. Who else? I mean, it was Alice, you know. You don't have any idea what I'm talking about, do you? Your neighbour? Come on, I talk about Alice all the time. You don't. Maybe if you listened. I'm listening now. Enlighten me. She'll probably end up being, I don't know, the woman who gave your mum food poisoning that one time or something equally mundane. Mundane? Clearly you don't know Alice. I thought that was the whole point of this, that I don't know Alice. Well, you know what they say, you never forget your first. Wait, she's that Alice. 
So you do know. Alice, your ex, Alice. One and the same. But she's so old. She's not old. She is. She's 52. Exactly, she's 52. 52 is not old. And anyway, I mean, she wasn't 52 when we were together. She was literally twice your age when you were together. It's creepy. Seeing her now and knowing you and she... No, I can't. It's too weird. You always knew she was older. Older, yes. I thought she was 19, 20 at the most. 20, 33, what difference does it make? A lot. She was an adult. A proper adult. As opposed to an improper adult? She was 33 and you were 16. She was an adult and you were a child. We were both adults. We both knew what we were doing. And you know what they say, age is nothing but a number. You know who famously said that? Noted paedophile R. Kelly. He's not a noted paedophile. What even is a noted paedophile? The point is, you weren't both adults though, were you? I'm just saying that in terms of life experience, we were in the same place. What? I was old for my age back then. Everyone said it. How about now? You're in your 30s now. Can you imagine getting off with a teenager? That's different. Why? Well, for one thing, I'm with you. Yes, okay, but if you weren't with me... If I wasn't with you, then I wouldn't be having this conversation. Problem solved. If you were single, would you really go and troll the local high school to find dates? Things were different back then. It was 1999, not 1840. It might as well have been 1840. I didn't know anything about being gay. Who did? Alice was the only person I'd ever met who was gay. Then she had even more of a responsibility to protect you. She didn't know anything about being gay either. We were in the dark together. We figured things out together. There must have been other people. It's not like you lived in a small town. You lived... I lived in the suburbs. Yeah, suburban Glasgow. When I told you about Alice before, you always said that it sounded romantic. That was before I knew she was a 35-year-old kiddie diddler. She wasn't a kiddie diddler. I wasn't a kid. Anyway, she wasn't 35. She was 32. 32, 35, 30, whatever. The point still stands. She's still a nonce. I always said she lived in the house next door anyway. I don't know why you're making such a big thing of it now. Is it because you're jealous? What? Of the aged? I thought you meant she was a teenager who lived next door with her parents. And you know damn well I thought that's what you meant. She lived next door with her husband. She was married. I've told you the story before. Evidently, you left a load of key details out. What else aren't you telling me? Did she have other teenage lovers? Oh, did she have kids? Like her own biological kids? No, of course not. Of course not. There's no of course about it. She was married, Kim. Married. The fact she was married is just a little detail. Everything else you know. Clearly, I don't. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It seems you missed out a lot of these little details. Like the fact she was 32 and friends with your mother. They weren't really friends back then. Oh, that came later, did it? Yes, I suppose. What? After you left, your mother and your ex decided, well, now that Kim's gone, we better start having tea. Are you being serious? I don't really know what they talked about. It just kind of happened, I guess. I'd left home by then, of course. Does your mother know? Know what? What she did to you. Jesus, Sam, she didn't do anything to me. Fine, fine. Does she know that you and Alice used to be together? Of course she knows. She's not stupid. She knows, but she still has Alice over for dinner. Why wouldn't she have Alice over for dinner? She's not some kind of homophobe. As if homophobia is what all this is about. 
I just don't understand why she invites Alice, the woman who had a relationship with you when she was 32 and you were just 16, round for tea. Last night, Alice gave her back her Tupperware box for crying out loud. Oh, the horror. I just don't understand. So you keep saying... What's there to understand? They are neighbours, I mean. It's not like they can ignore each other for the rest of their lives. And why should they? No one did anything wrong. Alice did. Surely I should be the one to judge that. Why do you keep telling me what did and did not happen? You weren't there, Sam. What did happen then? What happened was we were in love. I have only good memories of my relationship with Alice. Okay? End of. It was happy, and then it was over, and now I'm over it, and yes, she came round for tea. That's not a crime, is it? Should I call the tea police? I'm not saying you weren't happy. I'm only saying that you were very young. Let's just go to bed. I mean, I'm sorry I even brought it up. It's me. You left breakfast. I don't blame you. Your mum was being... Well, she's your mum. I'm sorry. What about? About breakfast. Just that? I'm not going to apologise for what I said about Alice. I'm not sorry about that. You never are. I'm sorry I mentioned Alice to your mum, though. Shouldn't have done that. I thought she would... Are you going to let me in? I haven't decided yet. Why do you have to stir the pot? I didn't do it deliberately. It just slipped out. It didn't just slip out. You deliberately brought it up. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's nothing to do with you. I know. I'm sorry. (sighs) Aren't you going to say anything else about Alice? I thought you didn't want me to. I don't. All happened a long time ago anyway. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter, you know. You don't know what happened between us. You only think you know. You're only guessing. I guess I am. Was Mum mad at me? I guess a little. Hard to tell, really, the way she mutters. I just had to leave, you know. Come more often if she didn't make it so impossible. All her little hints and little jabs. She does everything but tell me to my face that I'm a bad daughter. You're not a bad daughter. I don't visit. How long has it been? Two years? Three? You said it yourself. If she wasn't so impossible, you'd come more often. I'm not saying I don't love her. I know she's difficult, but she's still my mother, you know? Yeah, I know. Maybe that was the thing with Alice. Maybe what was? Maybe if Mum wasn't so Mum, then maybe... Me and Alice. Maybe it would never have happened, you know. What are you trying to say? Nothing, nothing important. It is important. It's obviously affecting you. Look at you. I don't know why. Look, can we not do this thing again? I'm not doing anything. It all happens a long time ago. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter now. Double negative. Okay. It was in the past. It's still important. I was just thinking about it. The way it was, stuck with her in that house, don't get me wrong, I have nothing but happy memories about our time together, it's only... Only what? Well, I keep thinking about everything. Me and Alice, 
Not that she did anything wrong. I'm not saying that. Okay. I'm just saying, oh, nothing, it's nothing. This whole thing has just been... Nothing? Right. Maybe I should go and see her. What? Why? There are things I want to ask her, questions. I don't know. We could go together. No. No. I don't know why it's so important to you anyway. Why are you so caught up in all of this? Because I love you. What do you want to do? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so I am here with Freya Jackson, who wrote Red Moon Rising. Hello, Freya. Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. Natalie, I'm really glad to be here. Glad to have you on board. So the uh, the listeners will have just heard Red Moon Rising, but we don't know about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background. So I've been writing for a few years now. Um, I kind of started and continued doing stuff in poetry, but then a couple of years ago, I decided to write a play. I then did, and now I've just been doing lots of um, drama stuff as well. This is my first audio piece. So you always envisaged this being an audio-only piece? Yes, I did. I thought audio could um, portray the level of intimacy between the two characters and have the audience really inside them in a way that the theatre piece couldn't. Mm. So being that it's not a standalone piece, it's part of a, a larger story... Well, I guess if you're intending on putting this on elsewhere or getting it produced in full, then you don't have to answer this because spoilers. But reading it or listening to it, I was wondering what Kim would do next. Do you have that set yet or is that something you're still figuring out? Um, It is part of a longer piece, which I might do something with. But I think the interesting thing is in these sorts of situations, you never really know what to do next. And there's not really a clear line of narrative when you're thinking about these ambiguities in the past it's hard Mm. to know like there's one thing which is sort of identifying a problem or identifying something that didn't go quite rightly and then you've got to think back and is there something you can do about it in the here and now apart from just think about it yeah I think that's that's an interesting topic to explore given the, the kind of the wider climate now of uh, of Me Too. And I think there's a lot of people going back and re-examining past relationships based off, oh, well, hang on, it's now known that this isn't acceptable. And if that had happened now, I probably could have spoken up about it. You made a point when you submitted that it was important that both Kim and Sam were female. So do you think relationships with significantly older people were more prevalent for LGBTQ plus teens in the 90s as opposed to heterosexual teens? So if the teenager was above the age of consent and was happy at the time, do you think it's possible to objectively judge these relationships and actions nowadays, given that we're in a climate where we are having these in-depth conversations about sexual relationships and power dynamics? I think first I'm going to say that this play isn't based on any of my personal experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not coming from any position of that. I'm just thinking through an idea. Um, Secondly, I'd like to say that I think if you are queer and you already think that you're different in some ways, it's quite easy for someone to take advantage of that. And the flip side is that if you kind of grew up... um, In the same way, you might feel like maybe you missed out on that sort of high school relationship Mm. because everyone around you was straight and kind of 
this idea of trying to take back something that you maybe feel entitled to or that you're disappointed about in like another way but I do want to say that I think judgment's really easy and I think there's definitely a huge place for it um to make kind of judgments because otherwise you just kind of drown in a sea of waffle but I think it's really important to sit with difficult things like difficult questions like this and not say is Alice right is Kim right is Sam right who's right um and just trying to think through um where they're going and I think that in this piece Sam's coming from like at this position of like knee-jerk judgment um and well but this is really Kim's story um the whole piece and what Kim's doing is she's trying to sit with these difficult feelings and these difficult questions and she's thinking these things through in all she's thinking through um how it relates to her in the present how she was in the past can she really know what she was like in the past because she's got all these memories and this story that she's told herself about this relationship is it possible to access the person she was in the relationship with Alice in her position right now now she's created this whole mythology about it this whole like first love mythology is it possible to go back is it possible to change things is it right to Mm. No, I think that's that's really interesting. That was a lovely answer. Thank you. Cool. So out of all of the Red Moon Rising aside, of course, out of all the things that you have written before, could you tell us what your favourite thing is? Or do you have a specific genre or style you like to work in? Okay, so I've got two things that I'm most happy with and they're complete not only completely genre, different genres, they're completely different forms. Great. So um one of them is um a short play which I'm working on adapting which is about a um, group of women um, who are part of the um, West Yorkshire lesbian anarcho-capitalist and hobby knitter society. That sounds hysterical. And the other thing I'm really happy with is um, a sonnet sequence I've just finished called um, An Atheist Invokes Aphrodite which is all about like this relationship between two people and it's very intimate and it's very um, romantic um so very different pieces but I like them equally much well thank you so much for coming on the podcast and doing this interview with me Freya where can people find you are you on social media do you have a website yeah I'm on um twitter Freya underscore m underscore jackson great thank you very much thank you very much for having me involved and I want to say a big thank you to everyone who helped make my piece happen the director the actors but also the sound recordist everyone who helped organize it and you for organizing this whole thing and I'm really excited to listen to the whole series oh thank you very much Freya and that's it for this week thank you so much for listening the Ragged Scratch podcast brought to you by Ragged Foils Productions was produced and hosted by Natalie Winter Play edits and sound engineering by Lorraine Ansel and Kirsty Gilmore. The Ragged Scratch podcast theme music was composed by Alex Jones. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do go rate, review and subscribe as it will help other people find the podcast. You can find us online at Ragged Foils across Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we've been tagging this week's creatives so you can find out more about them and their work. See you next week. <laughs>